I just a quick thing before this episode starts. Um, I've managed to somehow make a massive cock up on my computer and I've lost the original files for this episode. It was a lot more epic with soundtracks and clips and all that type of stuff. And it's gone. I cannot get it back. This has caused me much swearing and pacing up and down today. So rather than go back through and edit all that kind of stuff in, I'm just going to be releasing the raw audio track. So it's not quite as, as sounding as, it, as I wanted it to be, but... You know, um, it needs musty. It's either a case of get it out now or spend another week and I'm away for a bit soon anyway. So I just thought I'd get it out there. Also, there's a little bit of dip in the um, quality of the audio for about 10 minutes due to a problem with the microphone. Um, again, I'm not going to re-record it. I just would rather get it out there and get on with doing some more episodes. So this is my 2017 review. Hope you enjoy it. My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and this will be my review of 2017 and yes I always leave it a month or so just to give myself some time to really digest the films that I've seen the previous year and to hopefully re-watch some of them so I can solidify my thoughts on them a little bit better. Um, I'm going to kick things off with a slight um, kind of public service announcement and um, it came in the form, I've had two emails over this, um, over the years, and that is that some of you may have noticed, um, or perhaps you haven't even noticed, you might suddenly start noticing it in the future, but every now and then I slur my words, or I ever so slightly sound like I'm mumbling when I talk, and this isn't down to, I was actually asked if I was drunk when I was recording, and although I have recorded an episode where I've been slightly drunk before, no, it's not a regular thing that I drink excessively when I'm doing podcasts. In fact, I try to steer clear of it, really, because it helps me kind of think straight. No, I do have a slight speech impediment um, that kind of comes and goes. Um, it's quite annoying because it tends to be that the more aware I am of the fact that I'm doing it, the more pronounced it becomes. It's completely psychological. I have been to see a speech therapist about it a few years ago. I have seen a psychologist though about it. And it's just one of those annoying things that I cannot seem to shake. And I have noticed recently, because I listened back to the last episode actually, and yeah, I really was quite slurry in it. And unfortunately, there's not really much I can do about it. And I don't really see the point in kind of going back to kind of see a speech therapist. I'm just going to try and uh, kind of teach myself out of doing it. So if you do notice that I am a bit slurry every now and then, I do apologise. I know it was just to clarify as well, these emails weren't sent in. Um, there wasn't anything malicious about them. They were just genuinely worrying. They were kind of a bit sort of jokey, you know, had I had a couple and no, the answer was no. It just kind of comes and goes as it were. So um, nothing to worry about. I'm not some kind of alcoholic. In fact, I'm significantly cut down on drinking which I can really uh, recommend as a good choice um, I'm certainly finding myself a lot more energy and I can have I've really noticed the benefits of doing so but all that aside I'm gonna crack on with my review of 2017 and as always the rule is quite simple the film had to have had a UK release date in 2017 so I may well talk about films which came out where you live, if you live in another country in 2016, possibly even before, I don't know, but this will be a review of the 2017 films that came out in the UK. And 
As always, I'm going to do a little bit of a review before I get into my um, top 10 of what I kind of thought of 2017 in general. So I'm going to kick things off then. And my first real issue with 2017, it comes with the state of film criticism in general. Now, I was this last year massively getting back into reading textbooks about film, with one in particular being Andres Bazan's look at the career of Jean Renoir, and it reminded me of just how good writing about film can be as an art form in itself. It was an exhilarating read, hearing about Renoir's use of mise-en-scene and locations to tell his stories, and I would watch these films that he was writing about and then reread the chapters. And for me, it kind of reminded me about being back at university when I was studying film on such a deeper level than I was used to. And I was absolutely loving it. And it, it's gone on. I, I, I keep now picking up textbooks and dipping in and out of them. And I've really enjoyed it. I also saw me resubscribe to Film Comment. And that has been a breath of fresh air as long with its excellent podcast, where films are actually talked about in the manner they that actually informs and deepens appreciations of the medium through a variety of topics from artist spotlights to the way Steadicam is such an amazing tool in the filmmaker's arsenal. Yet this year I became consciously aware of another form of film criticism that in today's current climate was actually quite obvious that it would become the dominant form of film debate on the web. It's no surprise to anyone who follows me on Twitter or social media that I'm not a huge fan of social justice warriors and outrage culture. My primary reason is mostly to do with fact. I simply don't believe what the people are claiming to be offended and outraged by are actually that outraged and offended. Instead, I believe it's more about obsession with victimization and displaying fake empathy or a non-existent connection to a particular cause. The idea that women, for example, are that oppressed and downtrodden in the West is laughably pathetic and has created a kind of supply and demand problem. The demand is a patriarchal system of oppression in which women in the West live in a kind of handmaiden's tale dystopia in which although they can still work, they have to suffer the indignity of earning 20% less than their male counterparts and are near constant recipients of misogynist behaviour both by men and their own internalised misogyny, which will see them doing things like voting for Donald Trump or self-censoring what they said in fear of male retaliation. It's complete and utter nonsense of the highest order. Women vote for who they want and what they want to vote for. They choose the careers they want and in order to close the gender pay gap, we must stop women from having children and dictating to them what their careers should be which to me sounds awfully more like The Handmaiden's Tale than the reality that's apparently being presented to us. Women the world over are pinned to the floor and have their clitorises cut off, are sold into marriage and live in countries where beating them is legal. These are women's issues, not whether or not your boss is holding the door open for you in an attempted microaggression to undermine you and reinstall male dominance in the office. I find it all rather pathetic. Yet enter film criticism into this nonsense and we are beginning to pay the price with a succession of frankly insane articles in which feminist defence bots cry foul. You, like me, may have enjoyed the film L, and spoiler alert, I will be discussing it in more detail quite soon. Well, according to a writer called Bashida in The Guardian, if you like L, you are a rape apologist. Yes, that's right, you actively condone rape. And I will read verbatim the opening of her article. Rape apologists, do you like cinema? Have you always suspected women secretly want to be stalked 
brutalised and raped, and that the biggest women haters on the planet are not men, but women themselves, then brace yourself for a celluloid treat. Now the article doesn't get any better after that, but it's worth reading nonetheless. And of course, she goes on to rail against the all-male production crew, the mostly all-white cast, and on and on and on, while simultaneously forgetting that it is entirely possible to watch Elle, to be disgusted with it, to be angered by it, to be appalled by it, to find it grossly offensive, to rail against its gender politics, to disagree with it on every level, and still enjoy the film and appreciate it is for what it is. What bothers me so much is that the article isn't about film criticism. It's about labelling and accusing. For liking Elle, you should not be called a rape apologist. It's a disgusting accusation to make. And having seen this year been labelled a bigot and a racist for daring to suggest that people should not steal iPads during natural disasters, these types of labels do not further any cause whatsoever. Part of the issue is inserting of agendas into every facet of our culture for the purpose of hyper-aggravating causes. The key areas for virtue signalling journalists and disgust at the moment is toxic masculinity, which is not to suggest for a second that the behaviour of the likes of Harvey Weinstein and co is not despicable. It is, and those who have behaved terribly should be named and shamed and never work again. And they are, but let's get some perspective. They are a minority, a small one at that. And it's worth remembering that the disgust of these individuals is universal. However, in the world of outrage, there is fertile ground to deconstruct any film to expose the fact that it is simply part of the greater masculinity problem. Enter Anita Sarkeesian, a Gamergate casualty whose review of War of the Planet of the Apes began with the following strapline. Masculinity, rage and racism. Some thoughts on the war for the planet of the apes. In the article, Sarkeesian riles against violence. The film's barely contained racist undertone and offers the radical thought that Blockbuster should offer compassion and humility over violence. So in effect, what she wants is a film called Gender Neutral Discussion for the Future of the Planet of the Apes. And what Sarkeesian fails to grasp is that violence sells. It is a film about a war, for heaven's sakes. It's not about rational, nuanced behaviour. It's escapism. And yes, it may be heavy-handed, and it's not too subtle, but really, who fucking cares? It's a film about apes and men fighting. What's worse is Sarkeesian considers any criticism of work to be nothing more than sexist male hate fueled assaults, therefore rendering any counter-debate to her points further reinforcements that she is herself the victim of male aggression. Harassment is not disagreeing with someone's point of view, yet it is exactly the type of critical culture we are beginning to see. Blade Runner 2049 was universally agreed to be a rather brilliant film, yet of course we cannot get away from the clamouring to label the film sexist. Blade Runner 2049 may be a film set in the future, but its treatment of women is still stuck in the past, claim The Telegraph, and many, many more like it. Strangely here though, most critics agreed the film was something of a masterpiece, yet I, feel, yet I feel they offered caveats to their love of the film by making meek lip service to the film's gender politics for fear of not being criticised for mentioning it. Overwhelmingly on Twitter, I saw commentators and critics agonising over the film's gender politics. Where I wondered was the fawning over Roger Deakins' incredible cinematography or Hans Zimmer's score in the same volume. Instead, we had a focus on toxic masculinity in 2049, and not only is it boring, it's profoundly detrimental to the advancement of film criticism. 
where we once discussed the relationship between mise-en-scene and camera movements, we have an army of film critics obsessed with the film being more about message than its aesthetics. Not that I ever took the Oscars that seriously, but it had become abundantly clear that the direction of the awards is shifting to the political. The Oscars so white non-controversy virtually guaranteed that Moonlight would win Best Picture, and in a way it had to, had La La Land won, then the usual fake outcry about a film about white people, made by white people, and how the Oscars was the same inherently racist organisation as ever, would have swamped the internet the day after. But no, in Moonlight they had the perfect film to show their rehabilitation. Yes, it's a good-looking film, but it's also a frankly ridiculous one. Yet I believe it to be indicative of even greater dumbing down that will occur if film succumbs to the obsession of ideology over aesthetics. And yes, there is room for both, but when handled as awfully as Moonlight, I do fear for cinema. The fact of the matter was that TV was where I had most of my fun in 2017. Quite frankly, Netflix is showing the world how it's done. Although Netflix film output does not rival its TV series achievements, I believe it's only a matter of time before it catches up. What then for the trip to the cinema? Well, firstly, cinema chains need to realise, and fast, that costs have to come down. Although north of £7 is too expensive unless it's something like IMAX, View in Manchester is offering £4.99 a film, which I consider to be a perfect amount. However, this does come at caveats. View has taken over the Printworks cinema in Manchester, being forced to by the government, and the result has seen a quite noticeable decrease in the quality of the cinema. Apparently it has a rodent infestation, which if I can which would probably be caused by the amount of popcorn and food left in the cinemas that I'm seeing. And overall, it just seems to be getting slightly more mankier. It is quite a depressing state of affairs because when it's run by Odeon, it really was one of the best cinemas in the country. And there's also the small issue of Manchester's, I suppose, art house or alternative cinema, Home, which is charging £9 to see a film, which I think is frankly obscene. It really is quite a put-off to me. But when that is all said and done, the cinema still has its draw. Star Wars will always pack them in, as will The Fast and the Furious. But Hollywood needs to retire some old franchises. And yes, I know originality is hard to come by, but it can be found and more should be done to nurture it. So I guess I really must move on to talking about the films that I saw in 2017 that I either hated or just thought were plain outright terrible. We'll begin with something that really pains me. So Prometheus, yes, it was problematic. And as those ships flied off into space, I was hopeful its sequel would continue the story and enrich this somewhat troubled, yet ultimately quite interesting film. And then along came Alien Covenant, which promptly dispenses with everything in Prometheus in about three minutes and becomes another alien film, rendering Prometheus even more maddening. Alien Covenant had its moments, but I wanted a full-blown Prometheus sequel, and I will discuss it more on another day, but instead what we got was another by-the-numbers alien retread from the very man who started the entire franchise in the first place. Alien is a simple story of survival. Alien Covenant is a bloated mess of non-stories and dead ends. How, I wondered, could I be bored watching an alien film, and bored I most certainly was. It pains me to say it, but I am beginning to think Ridley Scott might have had his day.
Art House Ballfest, It's Only the End of the World, was dull and uninspiring, and I can't recall anything about it other than the fact that I was annoyed when I was watching it because I knew I had to go out and get some toilet paper, which mercifully I actually brought forward just to have a quick break from it. It rendered minutes into hours and upon conclusion left me infuriated that anyone thought this turgid crap was worth making in the first place. A Monster Calls was an film about British working class that insists the socio-economic group live in abject misery and to pile cliché on cliché, we have another little sad little boy with an imaginary monster friend to act as an eye-rolling dull metaphor for him escaping his depressing existence. Please, please, please stop doing this. It's beyond painful. Get Out was a film that everyone seemed to love, bar me. As my own Twitter digression showed, being a racist, bigoted fascist is actually woven into the very fabric of my soul. And Get Out sets its stall very early. This is a film talking about everyone, not just Trump voters, but also oh-so-progressive Barack Obama voters. Get Out's childish conceit slowly unravels as the film is forced to explain if itself. Of course, every white person in the film is a racist. They're white and privileged after all, how could they not be? I don't think the film had a message as such, moreover a condescending wagging finger to inform me I was deep down a racist and no out of pretending was going to say otherwise. It fails as a horror movie, it fails as a comedy, and it fails as a lecture in racial politics. If it's supposed to be satire, I don't really understand what it's satirising. I didn't really get what was so clever about it. I merely found it dull and uninteresting, but then again, I am white and privileged after all. Ben Wheatley must have really loved The Hateful Out because he has remade it in Free Fire. I saw through the film and its shallow fanboy facade almost immediately and almost immediately quickly forgot that it ever existed. Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge was further proof, if proof be needed, that Andrew Garfield is not a leading man and never will be. Gibson's perverted pleasure in human violence has reached new depths of semi-erectile fascination in what could have been a genuinely interesting explanation of a pacifist role in war that instead becomes a peckinpah pastiche monument to slow-motion death and blood-squib explosions. I did offend an online mob of Garfield fans, however that made the experience of watching the film slightly more worthwhile. I tweeted my thoughts on Garfield to be met with a barrage of abuse. Apparently he was nominated for an Oscar, so what did I know? Mercifully, I wasn't called a racist or a bigot on this one, but my goodness, were these guys militant. Now here's another film that I liked but didn't necessarily loved. La La Land annoyed me so much on my first watch that I watched it again the next day to see if I actually liked it, which I did, which actually made me annoyed even more by it. Well, to be honest, I was being a misery and just wanted to hate it because, in fact, everyone else seemed to like it and it was called La La Land, which I found strangely annoying. But getting over my prejudice, I did really enjoy it. It's a self-indulgent film and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It clearly is a passion project and Chappelle, the director, and Damien Chappelle, sorry, the director, clearly loves jazz and clearly loves musicals. Its biggest drawback is the songs. They don't simply soar to the heights needed to make La La Land more memorable. But... Something like Let It Go became a pop culture phenomenon for Frozen, and I could not name a single song from La La Land, nor could I hum one. Gosling and Stone do sell the film, though. They can sing and they can dance, and there is no doubt they have chemistry. 
It's dark for sure and mildly smug, and you can hear Chappelle saying those jazz lines spouted by Gosling, and nothing does me in more than hearing jazz snobs prattle on about why their genre is the greatest. But credit where is credit is due. La La Land was fun, its bittersweet ending was kind of a bummer, and I was wondering if Chappelle's being a little too cool for school, but on the plus side, on the plus side, it has made me want to go back to Los Angeles again and soak in some of that magic. Get Me Roger Stone was a terrific Netflix documentary that went some way to explaining why Donald Trump won the election and simply put that has a great deal to do with cheating and lying and yes it is really that depressing. The reporter's risk confirmed everything I've ever felt about Julian Assange. He is possibly one of the biggest pricks on planet Earth. Assange has become the poster boy of anti-establishment imbecile who actually think he's on the side of free speech and freedom of information. It's a pity then they fail to continually see that Assange is nothing more than a vile egomaniac, a genuinely creepy, women-hating piece of shit. Equally seedy are Assange's fellow WikiLeaks chums. They spout the most inappropriate comments in front of Muslim women and exposed as sexual assaulting arseholes. And of course the women who made allegations against Assange are a bunch of lesbian feminists out for some exposure. Assange clearly loves the camera, yet is completely unaware of it seems and just how unflattering it is towards him. Watching him call the Democrat Party to warn them of a security breach that has taken place, you can literally see a man reaching a level of smugness no human has gone before, seemingly unaware that his attempt at name-dropping is simply met with complete and utter disinterest by the person on the other line. At time, Assange and co assemble Scooby-Doo and the Mystery Gang, hold up in a WikiLeaks sympathiser's vast house. There's a seedy air of a cult with Assange playing the role of the deranged leader. The film enters new realms of the insane when hold up in his Ecuadorian basement, Lady Gaga comes to visit for the most awkward and frankly moronic exchanges ever captured on film. Risk is an interesting work, however. What is actually achieved is interesting to ponder on. There is a lesson there in becoming too involved with one's subjects, and Portis had a relationship with one of the film's key players. She even ponders on the film how Assange thinks about her and his reasoning for letting her have such access to him, and it rather made me what we are not seeing in the film. It was re-edited after Cannes, and from a purely curious perspective, I would love to see this version as a point of comparison. Most importantly, though, it confirms one thing. Assange really is a prick. Lion was my feel-good experience of the year. This beautiful, moving true story of a boy adopted by an Australian couple trying to find his mother. Mostly avoided cheap, sentimental crap. Dev Rattel was unrecognisable in the lead, and this is a career-best performance from an actor who I've, up till this point, always been so-so on. The film's only misstep comes in the form of Nicole Kidman in one of those types of roles that Brad Pitt gave himself in 12 Years a Slave. Kidman is a great actress, but her performance feels strangely forced, not helped by a permed haircut, which frankly reminded me of the same one my mum had in the 80s, which made her look like the Medusa and scared the shit out of me. I was unable to detach from the fact that it was a huge movie star in a role that didn't seem to warrant it, and her worthiness of the character began to wear thin on me. Films like this don't need big stars. They function better outside of the distraction of Hollywood and would, in my opinion, be better served by lesser-named actresses. It did come, however, as no surprise she was nominated for an Oscar for this, although God knows that is not an endorsement. I have no real interest in motor racing, however, I do love documentaries about it. Then we had McLaren about McLaren and possibly the better of the two, Williams, a look at Frank Williams and his racing family. 
along with some amazing archival footage and audio recordings from McLaren's late wife, a portrait of a flawed but ultimately fascinating person emerged. It was a startlingly honest film. The dynamics of the family were deeply flawed. The infighting between McLaren's son and daughter over who was going to manage the team. And it was apparent that Frank's first family's motor racing with his actual biological family coming a very close second. It's easily and possibly justified to a degree to judge him quite harshly for his parenting manner, and indeed I dare say he strayed from his wedding vows on a number of occasions. In the current age of obsessing over toxic masculinity, McLaren Sr. does fit into the notion of not being the most ideal parent, yet the dynamics of his family show a closeness and bond through a love of motor racing. It may be not ideal to those on the outside, but there can be no doubt that this was a surprisingly honest, and pardon the pun, frank documentary, but more than just a flub piece, and became something ultimately far more interesting. Not really being one for a lover of animation in general, The Red Turtle was a joy. Now, I was by my own admission a little drunk when I watched it, and had I been more compassmentous, I would have enjoyed it a whole lot more. But from what I recall, it was a visual treat and reminded me of the sheer joy of hand-drawn animation. With regular moments of genuine wonder at the imagery, the film is available as well, I would say, on Amazon Prime at the moment to watch for free if you are interested. Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman did nothing for superhero films and nothing for women's liberation, despite reducing a Guardian commentator to tears for merely having a female lead. In the hysteria surrounding the film, virtually no one discussed its actual merits, which despite having a slightly weak final third, Wonder Woman was great fun. Gal Gadot made for a compelling and sympathetic heroine, and Jenkins managed to strike a fine balance between Kitsch and Ceres, giving by far in advance the most compelling superhero character DC have put out to date. War for the Planet of the Apes was a fittingly, if thoroughly depressing end to Matt Reeves' rebooted ape franchise. I maintain that these are the best eight films and the best entries yet into the franchise, with war well and truly upping the scale of the films to epic proportions. War does borrow too much from the likes of Apocalypse Now. My main issue with this series is rather two-dimensional portrayal of human protagonists. Woody Harrelson may as well be Colonel Kurtz, and it's two-dimensional and fa fanatical. But War lays the foundations for the original film superbly. And for all the reboots and remakes in Hollywood, Apes has proved a solid set of films. To me, it has to end now, though. Throw it on ice for a few years and possibly visit it sometime in the near future. I've heard rumours of a spin-off series. It doesn't need one. It needs to simply be enjoyed and not exploited. And Fox should channel their efforts into something far more original. Narrowly missing my top 10 was The Love Witch, Anna Bidea's exotic hammer horror pastiche was often hilarious film that was bar none almost one of the most erotically charged works I saw all year. The frankly incredible flip-flops between Siren and Calculated Killer with such effortless joy it was impossible not to be won over by it and the film. Its only drawbacks I would say was that it was rather too long, the joke and the premise were not sustainable for two hours but it was tremendously fun and seemingly destined to become a cult classic. Okay, so on to my top 10. Now, I must say that these are in no particular order until the top two. So I'm just going to say at number 10 is a film that I've already spoken about previously, and that was Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. I've actually watched it again since. It's one of the reasons why I do leave these shows a little bit later, so I can kind of revisit some of these films. And going back, I enjoyed Dunkirk even more on the second viewing. Um, 
it was definitely one of the cinematic events of the year for me and um, on a smaller screen it more than held up I now that I know what the film is and I'm kind of more comfortable with what Nolan was trying to do um, I, I found it f- far more compelling um, it doesn't really put many f- much foot wrong it's just a pure exercise in the aesthetics of cinema in it and it's all the better for that um, I know that uh, Christopher Nolan's been nominated for Best Director at the Oscars this year, and I, I honestly would—I'd have no problem with him winning. I, I think it, I think it'd be good for film if he did win, actually, because it's—it would kind of we could honestly say that it would just be aesthetics over ideology that was the winner and I don't think there's anything really I don't think that's a bad thing certainly to say um, after that is another film that I've already spoken about God's Own Country Francis Lee's debut film um, yeah it's a, a brilliant film quite a, a British film that I could really get behind um, it had none of this uh, nonsense obsessing over class it was just a really interesting well-made well-acted genuine film I, it, it doesn't it doesn't cry out for you to like it it doesn't overly try and make its characters beg you to like them it's just such a I, I suppose raw is the word that I keep using I've heard so much used about it and it's certainly how I felt about it but yeah God's Own Country still absolutely love it um, and it, I, I'm really pleased um, it's done well because the, the chap the director of France Lee seems such a nice guy and so honestly thrilled that everyone's loving his film and he's kind of I've seen him on Twitter quite a bit and he seems to be such a great guy so yeah still really pleased that that film is getting a lot of attention um Okay, so on to number eight, and that was Kelly Reichardt's Certain Women. This year, Patty Jenkins appeared in Time's Most Influential People's List. It surprised me, to be honest. Her direction in Wonder Woman was felt very much part of a template for the DC Universe. In short, it had no personality, no sense of Jenkins as an artist with her own choice. It was pure product, mostly I would imagine as well. A lot of the action sequences being filmed by a second unit. Kelly Reichardt, on the other hand, is an artist with a very distinct voice and style. She is an auteur in the purest sense, and the fact that Patty Jenkins is sharing page space with Kim Jong-un shows that women like Reichardt are being criminally ignored by the mainstream media. Jenkins made a photocopied superhero on a massive budget. Reichardt has been a voice in the world of film for years, yet somehow, unless it seems you make a huge big budget film, it doesn't quite seem to mean so much. I've been a long-term fan of her work, and her latest, Certain Women, did not disappoint. It's hard to really describe the plot of Certain Women without making it sound a tad dull. Loosely speaking, we have three narratives. Laura Dern plays a lawyer with a client who come to rely on her as something as an emotional crunch. Laura Dern plays a lawyer with a client whom she sees her as something being an emotional crutch. Michelle Williams is a wife and mother building a retreat for her family, whilst also raising a golf is developing between her and her husband. And Lily Gladstone plays a rancher who wanders into night school lessons and comes across a jaded, washed-out teacher played by Kristen Stewart. None of these stories are really that dramatic, for, for the most part they have very little or nothing to do with each other. And all this sounds rather uninteresting on paper, maybe it actually is. But Reichardt is a master of the unassuming, a director who deals in the subtle touches rather than broad strokes. And certain women's film about the moments between sentences, a look here and a smile there, with this seeming lack of narrative impetus, certain women makes you 
work hard to tune into it. And when you do, you get a richly rewarding experience that's quite unlike anything that I saw all year. Arguably, it's the film's final art between Gladstone and Stuart that was the most affecting. Gladstone's character, Janie, is a rancher who seemingly has little or no friends and is desperately sinking companionship. Rackhard's style lends itself to empathy rather than sympathy, and very quickly are you rooting for Jamie's to find happiness? I genuinely believe Rackhard is her most playful here. With no film conventions, we know what happens when a character sets off on a long highway to get the one that got away, and likewise we know what happens when someone falls asleep at the steering wheel. Here we get neither of what you would expect in such circumstances. You're not even sure how affected Jamie is by the whole experience. More likely she may that evening just shrug the whole thing off. It's just one of those moments or it may affect her for the rest of the life. And this is why certain women work so well for me. It never felt forced, it simply puts on its... It simply plays out on its terms. And for some, I dare say, certain women will fall well sure and to a degree I could perfectly understand why. For me, however, it was a minor miracle of a film, a moment that felt so liberated from the usual conventions we are often so accustomed to. It is unmistakably a Kelly Reichardt film, an auteur in the truest sense, and one of the most interesting talents working in the industry today. Since the temporary closure of my film room due to ongoing house renovations, I've had to slum it with a 46-inch plasma screen. Now, as you can imagine, this has been a traumatic experience. Size does matter, after all, and one has been deprived of many inches, I've been feeling profoundly hard done by. The other thing, of course, is that whilst I've been watching films, I've been painfully aware that I'm kind of missing out on a relatively big screen experience. And like I totally did, I did not go to the cinema proper to watch James Gray's The Lost City of Z, because goddamn, it is the type of film that demands big screen viewing. Based on a true story of an explorer who I'd never heard of called Percy Fawcett, and his quest to find the titular lost city of Z in South America, this was a cinematic joy that had people reminiscing about old adventure films they'd probably never seen anyway. Suffice to say, it was a beautiful film, shot entirely on film itself, Grey's Lost City of Z felt like something had actually decided to take a risk and finance a film that would probably have limited commercial appeal, but decided to take a punt on it anyway. Now, firstly, the film did not make much of its 30 million budget back, which is a pity, but thank goodness it was made in the first place, because I, for one, absolutely loved it. Everything I have read since would indicate that the film is in no way, shape or form historically accurate. If you want to know about Percy Fawcett, do your own research. But judging the film on what it is, I found it to be a mesmerising experience. Slow in pace and at times remind me of films from Apocalypse Now to Werner Herzog's Wrath of God. The Lost City of Z was a perfect Sunday afternoon watch, accompanied with some whiskey, two sleeping cats and a blanket because I couldn't be bothered getting up and putting the heating on. Now, exploration in the last century was a fairly hit or miss affair. The absence of Google Earth meant that people like Fawcett had to go out in the world and actually discover it for themselves. And the film is driven by the tantalising notion that somewhere out there is a city made of gold. Snubbed and sneered by the establishment, Fawcett is played brilliant by Charlie Hunnan with a superb supporting class including an unrecognisable Robert Patterson. The Lost City is, the, is a haunting experience. This is more Joseph Conrad than E.M. Foster and that of course means going on journeys that are more inward than outward. The film's narrative arc does seem a little unfocused at times but when it moves towards its conclusions you are left with a subtle and at times haunting meditation of what drives people to do what they do. This is easily Grey's best film to date. 
It has the air of a passion project, and despite having a fairly troubled production history, Grenko have created a cinematic oddity. It's an adult film made for adult audiences, universally liked with caveats of course. It's a film lover's film, shot on film, on location, with a great score and well acted. It's no wonder it didn't make a single cent back. Okay, so next up was Olivier Anassi's Personal Shopper. Olivier Anassis has followed up the excellent Clouds of Silmaria with possibly my favourite film of his to date with Personal Shopper. Kristen Stewart has cemented her place as my favourite current working actor in the standout performance of the year. Kristen Stewart cemented her place as my favourite current working actor and with the standout performance of the year for me is Maureen, a personal shopper for a celebrity in Paris. Grieving for her twin brother who has recently died, Maureen believes she can reconnect him through the spirit world. She has the same condition as her, her brother and will likely die at any moment herself. Before his death, the pair decided that whoever went first would try and reconnect with the other one. And signs are he is trying to contact her. We see apparitions, glasses smash and text messages seemingly from the other world of the dead. If this all sounds a little bit silly, it's because Personal Shopper does occasionally drift into this territory, but make no mistake, it is a scary and at times deeply moving a film about grief and mortality. Anassis has toyed with the fantastical before, especially in the clouds of Silmaria, he has embraced it fully. The simple text message takes on a sinister and possibly terrifying new role as a direct hotline to the afterlife, or indeed it could be suggestive of Maureen's grief manifesting itself in a way that we all interact every day. Personal Shopper draws on modern anxieties about technology, but also on our irrational fears of the supernatural. I'm convinced no matter how atheist we are, how sceptical we are, we all have a small part of us that believes in the ridiculous, albeit from superstitions or in some form of hidden world, and it's one that we can take comfort from, or indeed be fearful of. It is Stuart who holds the film together. There is something androgynous about her appearance that I find gives her a unique screen presence. She never seems to stand out in her films as a typical star would do, instead it feels she is more a case of blending into them. In The Clouds of Samira, she simply disappears. You notice she is gone, but you never feel like the film has undertaken a huge loss when she goes. Here is Maureen, Stuart conveys a great deal of her inner turmoil, merely in her facial expressions, seemingly distanced from the job she does. This is a film about internalised grief. Maureen may or may not be tormented from beyond the grave, and possibly the film's perspective leaves it open for multiple interpretations. I was reminded of the likes of Vertigo and Roman Polanski's Repulsion. Both films are at times excruciating to watch, not because of their lack of quality, but for me I always find it myself becoming anxious as to what the characters are going through. I felt for Maureen's sense of loss desperately trying to come to terms with her own mortality and also desperately trying to make sense of a world without her brother. Personal Shopper works because it never really becomes overly melodramatic and it never feels silly. It just works and I bought into the film totally. I can see why the reaction from it has been divisive amongst audiences and I can understand why. It's a real love it or hate it film and crucially for me all I wanted to do having seen it was watch it again. Manchester by the Sea was a film whilst watching it I loved, yet I can honestly say that I'm not entirely sure why I would ever want to watch it again. Kenneth Longton's film can hardly be described as fun, although it did at times make me laugh. Casey Affleck plays Lee, a man who has accidentally caused the death of his children, and after the passing of his brother is forced to care for his 16-year-old nephew. Lee's life is one of spent in unrelenting grief poses the question, what do we possibly do in such a state, and is there anything we can do? 
It's not an easy film. It finds humour in the darkness, and there's some brutally honest about it. Something you don't often see in films and televisions, and that is that the film doesn't have a real sense of closure. Emotional trauma is often resolved in cinema. The character's journey presents their grief as an easily remedial problem that replacing what is lost will automatically solve the crisis at hand. Manchester by the Sea does not offer this. Lee is crippled by his guilt. There is no escaping what has happened to him, and what is even worse, he is despite his emotional reaction and what our emotional reaction might be to what he's done, not legally culpable. He is not facing punishment for what has happened, it's just a sad, tragic error. Lee's hometown of blue-collar America is the titular Manchester, a working fishing town. It's a place where people simply work and spend their time in bars at night having a beer and going home to their wives. Lee is now an outcast here. People know what he has done. And it's also where his ex-wife Randy, played by the excellent Michelle Williams, lives. We expect her to hate him, yet her empathy and undying love for him make Lee's situation all the more painful. Again, the film flips the convention that Rand should be hated and filled with ritual towards him. She understands his grief and begs him not to die. If this cell sounds thoroughly unappealing, then to a degree it is. Longhorn's film will not leave you feeling particularly great about yourself, and there is an uncomfortable honesty to it. Lee's relationship with his nephew Patrick makes for some amusing moments. Patrick does not seem that bothered about his dad dying, and Lee is certainly not there to and he is certainly not that bothered about being his adopted father. Grounds for relationship are there, but make no mistake, you're not going to get a big hug at the end of this film. Longland's direction is also restrained and considerate. The performances carry the piece, with the only real misstep being of the use of Adagio in G minor during one of this film's most important moments. It's a piece we have heard many, many times before, and frankly took me out of the film, like almost to the point of having to turn the TV down. That all being said, Manchester by the Sea is an extraordinary film. I want to see it again, I really do, but I just simply don't know when I would make time to do so. Also, easily, this is Casey Affleck's best film to date, and I would possibly wager it will be the film that defines his career. Williams, too, shines. Her pathos is palpable. The scene between her and Lee, which has been coming for the entire film, was easily the most affecting thing I saw all year. James Mangold's Logan is the best superhero film ever made and his potential to become a modern classic. And yes, I believe every single word of that. Billis Jackman's last outing is arguably the, the most iconic X-Men of them all. I simply cannot believe that Logan was made by the same studio that spat out X-Men Apocalypse. Logan is no way, shape or form a standard superhero film and reminded me in some ways of The Watchmen. With his powers failing and now entrusted with the domestic task of caring for Professor X, Logan is a shadow of his former self. Largely following a road movie style narrative, it's not about epic battles and spaceships landing on things or travelling through time, it's about an aged superhero dealing with failing health and fatherhood. Downbeat and adult in tone, Logan is violent, funny and touching. It's not nice seeing a character I've come to care so much about become so vulnerable, and Logan's healing ability does rather make him immune from actual peril. Slowly being stripped of these powers, Logan is open to attack, and for once we have a superhero film where the lead characters actually feel like they're in a degree of danger. Mangold's films breathe. It tells a story in its time, and like some, so many other superhero films, does not feel the need to get bigger and bigger with each passing moment. To offer kind of counter to this, I found Guardians of the Galaxy 2 to be a visually tiring affair. And yes, I know it's set in space, and I know it's really a kid's film for adults, but 
But the desire and the, indeed the mantra for Marvel and DC seems to be bigger and bigger the better. Logan is the antithesis of this. When we do have violence, it's up close and personal and extremely hardcore to boot. The language sees these characters actually say fuck a few times and pardon the fun, but it feels like Logan has been let off the leash somehow. What's so interesting about that film is its box office. The previous two Wolverine solo projects ranged from awful to marginally better, and they did okay at the box office, but here Fox and Mango have an R R adult R-rated film, and it has been the biggest Wolverine film to date. Who knew that when you make quality adult films, adults will come out to watch them? Sadly, Logan will be in the minority, I fear, Possibly Deadpool will carry on in a similar vein, but it's hard to see superhero films downsizing anytime soon. And with more X-Men due this year, we have to see where the franchise continues its downward trend. So, Paul Verhoeven's L. This must win the award for the most jaw-dropping slice of wrong I saw all year. Firstly, I would do with Isabella Huppert, who is hands down the best actress currently working. I cannot think of a single film she's been in where I have not, where even if I haven't especially liked the film, I've always liked her. Now it says a lot that Elle could not find funding in America, and good, because the last thing Elle needs is anyone other than Isabella Huppert for the role. Brutally raped in her own home, Elle does not call the police as one might expect. Instead she has a bath, and then carries on. She has an ex-husband who once hit her, a dad who is a mass murderer, and she's having an affair with her best friend, and her moron of a son is having a baby with his girlfriend. The joke being the baby is actually clearly a result of her having an affair with a black man. And then there's a small matter of the software company she runs that makes brutally violent computer games. Now obviously, Paul Verhoeven is an evil misogynist representing the very worst of male patriarchy. His camera looks between women's legs. It demotes women to mere objects of sexual desire and the victims of male violence, all the while being appalled by equally heinous men and women so ravaged by internalised misogyny they can barely function out the guiding hands of their male overlords. Or he's just a filmmaker whose work you can read as much into or as little as you want without being an arsehole or some female Uncle Tom. Verhoeven's career is a mixed bag, but you could hardly describe it as dull. Despite having a hideous rape, Elle does not... Despite featuring a hideous rape, Elle does not signify he has entered the serious phase of his career, because make no mistake, this film is very funny at times. It's ridiculous, and it knows it. And no, it's not a rape comedy. It's not a rape apologist dream, nor is it anti-feminist. What it is is provocative and challenging, and yes, there is room for films like Elle today, and films like It Should Be Made. My main issue with the detractors of the film, well, what kind of culture do they actually want? Do we want a film culture in which films like Elle aren't made, and if so, to what end? It's not a culture of choice, given if it's subject matter one could easily make up their own minds as to whether or not they wanted to see it. If they don't, that's their choice. If they think it might be objectionable, then they don't have to go. Simply put, the choice is theirs and theirs to make alone. What angers me is the conservativeness behind such thinking, proposing that the film would be offensive on behalf of the masses and therefore never seen or not made. And you will note as well, the outcry does not come from the right. It's not church group and stuffy politicians leading the outcry. It is the permanently insulted and offended lunatic fringe of the left that is the most vocal in their objections to films like Elm. And I simply cannot fathom what it is they want. What I do know is that I don't want them to decide on my behalf what I do and do not get to see. If I want to go and watch a vulgar, brilliant and at times shocking film, then L should be there for me to go and see. 
it fascinated me because seldom has I seen a character act and behave in a way that is so hard to predict. And make no mistake, Elle is affected by the rape. She hides her clothes away and her first instinct is to order food. She doesn't bother to call the police. She will find out who did it and when she do, she will decide what she does to them. It's a film about the subtle dynamics of power. Should she call the police or could she find the person herself and possibly shoot him? And interestingly, Elle is not a particularly sympathetic character either. One, being, one reason being, she doesn't really want any sympathy in the film. Verhoeven follows her everywhere through her busy and cluttered life. Her moron son and his vile girlfriend, her snivelling ex-husband, her business, her affair with her best friend's husband and her pursuit of sexual gratification. Through all of this, I found myself liking her, but also being very wary of the character. Was there something darker lurking under the skin with her attentions towards her attacker? I, didn't, I genuinely did not know what she was going to do. In lesser hands, such a potentially unlikable person would alienate, yet Hubert infuses Elle with a kind of fuck you attitude that makes you root for her even more. In a film populated with such unlikable, Elle seems un like an island of calm. The film does have a few missteps, and to discuss further would give away too many spoilers. And in fairness, it could be a little bit leaner, but it is an interesting film. It's subversive, it's different, and it pissed people off. Good, because films should be piss people off every now and then and we should have conversations that challenge us and infuriate us and as polarizing as L is well the one comfort I can take from it is that it pissed the right people off. Upon hearing a Blade Runner sequel was in the works my initial thought was for the love of god no. Firstly I don't want to find out if Deckard is a replicant and secondly can't we just leave things alone and go off and create original films? Well, thank Christ I never had anything to do with the green lighting of Blade Runner 2049, because not only is it a worthy sequel, it is, and I choke on saying this, a better film than the original Blade Runner. Denny Villeneuve is a director of whose work I have enjoyed immensely. Arrival, I thought, was overrated, and Sicario left me conflicted. But by God, are they interesting films to watch, with Enemy and Prisoners both being two real surprise delights for me. I can confidently say though, Blade Runner 2049 is his best film to date. A distillation of a visual style that seems to have reached its zenith here. And also, it was an interesting film for me on so many levels. I saw it on a frankly staggering IMAX presentation. And although I have reached some kind of age threshold, because at one stage I was actually wondering if the volume could be turned down, it was so loud. But I witnessed an incredible thing during this screening. At £12 a ticket, it was not cheap. Yet some of my fellow patients were at the 40 minute mark, becoming visibly unsettled. The lady next to me rolled her eyes at her boyfriend, and then it began to happen. First a couple, then another, then three young lads, and then two more. Yes, walkouts. Yes, even at £12 a ticket, Blade Runner 2049 was a film that people literally could not sit through. How? Why was it happening? And it dawned on me. These people are not used to seeing intelligent, slow-burning cinema. Blade Runner 2049 was not the science fiction action piece they clearly thought it would be. It was a police procedural. It was a meditation on the nature of existence. It was a dystopian journey into moral complexities of AI and the pessimism of future technology. And with some violence at the end, for sure. Critics loved it. 
but its box office would suggest, and by judging by the amount of walkouts I had in my screening, fans were not so quite keen on the film. And I think there's an anecdote that might be worth sharing about the film. A friend, I won't say who, that works at a major cinema chain said the programmers for said cinema chain could not wait to get Blade Runner out of the bill. In his, in his words, it was taking up too much screen time. Now this is a thoroughly depressing state of affair because make no mistake, the message of this will be heard loud and clear by Hollywood, make films shorter. But for all that aside, I found Blade Runner 2049 at two hours and 40 minutes to be a marvel. For such a huge scale film, it was the smaller moments that have stayed with me the most. That sex scene, those beehives, Officer K walking through his apartment block. For all the imagery is staggering, it never overwhelms its ideological core and it is worth the price of admission. For all, its for all its staggering imagery, it always had substance as well as the style. We are heading for an AI future. It is thoroughly inescapable and it will be with us much sooner than we think. The question remains, however, how do we integrate this into our lives? What will the effect be on humanity? Elon Musk will unleash the self-driving lorry and car. What will happen to said taxi drivers or lorry drivers? Do we introduce universal basic income as a safety net or do we retrain? Society will have to decide. Yet what will this happen on a human level? What if AI becomes sentient by our own design? What if your house literally loved you? Could you sell it? Would it even be moral to do so? We know that the algorithms that control computers and social networks show us exactly what we want to see and hear. If we do find ourselves interacting and with increasingly more sentient AI, this is essentially mimicking us. Therefore, what do we do about humanity? Will we become more isolated, cut off from the world around us? We are on the edge of a new world and Blade Runner 2049 for me was a window into it. At its core though, it is a police procedural and we get to see Kate actually solving a central mystery. And the evidence doesn't simply fall at his feet, he has to go to it and exercise a degree of skill in doing so. And as the film went on, I was struck by how thoroughly engrossed I was by it. Whereas my fellow patients had clearly become bored, I was enthralled as I waited for the film to catch up with the direction I thought it was going in. What had happened to Deckard and Rachel? Did I even want to find out? Along the way, the film was wrestling with some deep philosophical and moral question that combined with the central story made for an engrossing and deeply affecting film. Unlike the original, with its thoroughly unbelievable love story between Deckard and Rachel, we have Kay and his hologram Joy, an all-like creation who behaves exactly how he wants her to behave. An advertisement for her place outside of his apartment. Every day he is reminded of her artificiality, yet his bond with her is as real and as heartfelt as anything you could see for real. Joy is a distillation of the film's moral core. She is at first a commodity, a commercial item that anyone can purchase, and presumably there is a need for such a thing in this world, a creation that will mimic and reflect back exactly what you want to see and hear. Kay, by his very nature, has been ostracised from society. Humankind has turned his back on him. He is not even allowed to look people in the eye. Joy, therefore, fulfills a hole in his life, and although artificial, the emotional reaction to it is completely real. Initially, I felt a slight sense of deja vu with this. We have seen this theme before in science fiction on some level, in particular of an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, in which Data has a relationship with a crew member, 
although this became something all the more interesting. No matter how hard I tried, I could not bring myself not to look at Joy as a fully formed human character. I was as certain as Kay that she was real. I know to other people too who made similar observations. One female friend in particular who is currently going through the hell that is dating claimed that the version of Joy would actually be welcome compared to the idiot she regularly had to meet. What is real and what is not in Blade Runner 2049 becomes largely subjective. Joy is not real. Kay's reaction to her is, or is it? Is it technically possible to love something that is not real? Who gets to decide this? We know Deckard apparently loves Rachel, but her memories are fake. Intelligent science fiction asks the big questions. It's, it's become the home of the action film in Hollywood, but in recent years it seems to have been reclaimed somewhat. The books of Arthur C. Clarke blew my mind as a youngster, and Blade Runner 2049 did the same to me as an adult. I was left thinking about it and its themes for, for days afterwards, as I was when I read those original Arthur C. Clarke books, and I still am thinking about Blade Runner 2049 to some degree. And you all, not only do you get something for the head, but it's also a visual treat to boot. It deserves to win every technical Oscar going. I would contest that it's more impressive visually than any future we have seen on screen so far. Denis Villeneuve knows the power of image and lo and behold he lets you absorb what you are seeing. He actually stops and lets you have a look without feeling the need to cut and chop every three seconds. And it's never self-indulgent. It's merely a director who understands the power of a shot. And of course this is all helped by the marvellous photography of Roger Deakins. And in such a l an illustrious career I cannot think of a time he has been better. Surely this will be his time to win an Oscar. Particular credit must go to the score of Hans Zimmer. It doesn't have the iconic solo tracks perhaps of the original score, but it was by far in advance my favourite piece of music I heard all year, and Hans Zimmer has shown no signs of slowing down, and I think the world is a better place for that. The film's only misstep was always the appalling Gerard Leto. Knowing that David Bowie was going to play this character made it even more galling that I had to sit through Leto overreacting and looking confused throughout. And also I found the whole robot uprising subplot slightly uneasy. But sadly, Blade Runner was not a success. Running time and its heady nature have alienated some, and certainly I have heard from other people witnessing walkouts in their screenings. Ridley Scott himself said that he thought the film was too long. It isn't. It just takes its time to tell its story, and not for a second did I consider it to be self-indulgent. One need only look at the disaster of The Last Jedi to realise that we are heading to extremely dangerous territory for mainstream Hollywood cinema. If critics are fawning over such a despicable piece of shit, then God help us if audiences are going to it in their droves. I know I will watch this film for many, many years to come, as I have the original Blade Runner. And yes, I really do believe it is better than that film. So there is nothing better than when you hear a film that is being hyped beyond belief for one's shutters to come down and immediately be convinced that you will hate it. Which is why Call Me By Your Name came along and I was somewhat weary. Was this just another Moonlight style virtue signalling load of nonsense? And God forbid I was not in the mood for two hours of gay men pondering their existence. Well shame on me for even thinking that because not only is Call Me By Your Name everything Moonlight isn't, it is by far in advance one of the most moving and thoroughly enjoyable films I saw all year. In the depths of winter there was something undeniably comforting watching a film shot in gorgeous sunshine all helped with a heavy dose of Italian 1980s disco music. I could have stayed in that world all day, but of course this was not simply about location and mood. 
The film's trump card is its screenplay. Veteran James Ivory has written a screenplay that is devoid of cliché. There is not a single character who does not act in a way that feels forced and over the course of its running time, the relationships that form on screen have an air of naturalism about them whereby I found myself genuinely and totally believing with the characters were acting exactly as these people would. They were real people. So often in film I see characters ruined by the need to create dramatic tension to move the plot forward. Often, as in the case of Winter's Sleep, undoing large amounts of what has gone before. Elo is a young and impressionable. Oliver is an older man coming over to see his father and work experience on an archaeology in Italy. And over the course of the film, Oliver exerts a, an allure over Elo that manifests itself in Oliver being all too consumed by the object of his infection. He masturbates, he gazes, he even has sex with fruit before the pair's relationship moves on to the physical. Oliver gently toys with Elo. He puts his hand on him for a little bit longer than is perhaps normal. He plays cruel attempts at making him jealous and has an idle relationship with a local girl. Elo is no pushover though and dupes Oliver into getting to freezing water and, and is aware of the fact that Oliver is falling for him too. Oliver knows what he's doing to Elo though and I would wager he realises that this will be a memory to romanticise and recall fondly. Yet this is not some frivolous encounter. Undeniably the attraction between the two is more lustful than its declarations of love but the chemistry between the two is actually palpable. I can't recall an on-screen couple with such conviction in recent memory. The film's setting adds much to its charm. There is something a little too perfect about it. Perfect meals outside in the afternoon, sun washed down with wine, beer and fresh bread, and cool disco in the evening punctuated by archaeological trips by the lakes. Yeah, his house too is vast and spacious with creaking floorboards and a menagerie of rooms to become lost in. And if it's all ever so slightly too perfect, then I think that might be actually the point. Or at least for someone living in Manchester in the middle of the winter, it simply might be jealousy. However, I felt the film operates like a memory, as if someone has recollected every perfect detail. It's not dreamlike per se, but whenever I think back to past film memories, I have a tendency to only recall the perfect details. Namely the summer of 1999, which I am convinced consisted of endless summer nights with my friends at university, drinking beer and not really giving a toss about anything. It was sheer utter bliss. The relationship between the two plays on the backdrop of this perfect accompaniment, with director Luca Guarginio under, understated direction never draws overt attention to it. It's measured and clearly he is aware that the two leads have completely nailed their parts and simply lets them do their thing. A point of comparison, I recently watched Ridley Scott's A Good Year, easily one of his worst film. It's a film that takes place in a similar type of location with a love story at its core. Yet Scott cannot get out of the way, he's all over the film. And obviously the film is further hamstrung with a terrible Russell Crowe performance that steers it towards a giant expensive doll mess. In lesser hands, Call Me By Your Name could have befallen a similar fate, yet as his excellent bigger splash, Luca Guardino knows how to pace his films perfectly, making payoffs all the more rewarding when we finally get to them. Call Me By Your Name feels longer than it is, and that is by no means a criticism. Instead, it's a testament to how drawn into it I became. Weeks pass, of course, in weeks pass, of course, over its running time, and relationships are forged. All of this felt completely natural, and again is a testament to the genius simplicity of James Ivory's screenplay. Possibly one minor irritant was the film's soundtrack when it moved away from the Italian disco. 
being largely piano-based, the score did often remind me of something like a Citroen car advert or a terrible programme about property buying abroad. But that when all said and done, Call Be My Your Name is one of the best films I've seen in a long time. I think it's actually a future classic and definitely award-winning. And most definitely, it was my hands-down film of the year. Okay, so that's going to be it. Let me know what you think of my top 10 and my films that I despised. I will be back soon with another episode. Hopefully, I'm going to get to see Phantom Fred... Uh, uh, sorry, Phantom Thread over the weekend. And I was going to do something around that. So I should be in contact soon. Many thanks for listening. I'll speak to you soon. Bye.